Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate £1 a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash projectrs and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash projectrs. Now here's the episode. Welcome back, my friends. It's me, David Robertson. And it's me, Christopher Cotter. And it's us, the Religious Studies Project. I hope you're well. It's sunny here. It is sunny indeed. Um, It's been sunny for quite a few days. Long may it continue. Um, I imagine, well, given the weather, that a lot of food has been wasted Mm-hmm. Um, over mm-hmm. the past few barbecues days. and such, yeah, excellent link there, Chris. Very professional because this week's interview is entitled "Religion, Food Waste, and Food Consumption," and it's an interview with Anna Salonen by Maria Alexevskaya. Let's pass over now. Hello. This is Religious Studies Project. My name is Maria Alexievska. I'm a PhD student in sociology at the University of Ottawa, Canada. It's my pleasure to welcome today a doctor of theology and a postdoctoral researcher at the Tampere University, Finland, Anna Sofia Salonen, who has recently come to Ottawa for her research. Anna has been conducting studies at the intersection of theology and social sciences, and food has been a persistent theme. Anna's PhD thesis explored food charity in the city of Tampere while focusing on the perspectives and viewpoints of the food recipients. Uh, since last year, Anna Salonen has been involved in a research project that embraces both religious and non-religious populations and aims at understanding the ethics of daily food consumption in the context of an affluent society. Today we are going to talk about food waste, food consumption, and their relation to religion, health, identity, and ethical concerns. Our conversation will be a partial continuation of the discussion about food and religion that was started at the Religious Studies Project in 2013 when Michel Desjardins, Professor of Religion and Culture at Wilfrid Laurier University, was interviewed. To start the discussion, could you please first recount how and why you have become interested in the intersection of food and religion? Yes, thank you. Uh... So, for a long time, I've been interested in how religious organizations engage in helping those people who live in weak social and economic positions in society. And from very early on from my studies, I started to pay attention to the fact that in Finland, as well as in many other countries, uh, they do so particularly by giving people food. And this is, of course, nothing new. Like religious organizations... Uh, have shared the idea of sharing food for throughout the history. But still I think that in the era of unprecedented material affluence, it has been striking to see uh, that there seems to be an ever-growing need and also ever-growing supply for faith-based food assistance, even in affluent welfare societies. So my interest in the intersections between religion and food started from these observations. 
And how does a research about food consumption in the context of religious practices or just everyday experience help us better understand the human beings? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I consider eating as an interesting locus for research since it surpasses uh, the dichotomy between individualism on one hand and the sociability and collective action on the other. Uh, as the German sociologist George Simmel has noted, eating is an exceptional sphere of life in that in it one has to forego absolutely that which the other person eats. Actually, according to Simmel, it is only the Eucharist that enables us to uh, eat the same mysterious, unbroken whole. So, outside these kind of an extreme situations, such as Eucharist, uh, I can never eat exactly what you are eating. But at the same time, uh, with this kind of a banal individualism, eating is universal in that everybody must eat. And it is this quite trivial fact that enables food to have, have uh, such a tremendous social and societal significance. Uh, and in addition, I think that studying religion and food, it not only helps us better understand the human beings, but it also contributes in understanding our relationship with non-human animals and with the non-human world, particularly to the questions of what we eat or not, or who we eat or not. Thank you. And returning back to this old podcast, uh, in 2013, when a Canadian professor, Michel Desjardins, was interviewed, he told that, unfortunately, more, not much research has been done on the topic of food and religion, but he predicted that this field is likely to attract more scholars and produce more literature in the future. How do you describe and assess the current status of the subfield of religion and food? Um, so I had a chance to listen to that podcast too, uh, and I agree with a lot that Professor Desjardins said in his interview. I will not repeat it all here, but I maybe suggest uh, people to listen to that podcast too. Uh, as one answer to your question, when it comes to the lack of research on food in the field of sociology of religion, uh, there are certain historical traits behind it. So first, uh, the differentiation of Christianity and food is related to the differentiation of Christianity from other religions, particularly from Judaism. Uh, so historically, Christianity has taken distance from the food rules in order to draw boundaries to other religions. And further then, in the history of sociology of religion, Christianity, and particularly the Protestant form of Christianity, became the paradigm for religion. So it's the lens through which we approach religion, or used to approach the religion. And this led research to focus more on belief and less on ordinary bodily practice. But luckily, this has been changing. Uh, for example, with the rise of lived religion approaches in sociology of religion. Uh, so we concentrate nowadays more on the everyday lived experiences of people, and that also uh, relates to food. Uh, and also, I wish to point out that uh, there is or has been a bunch of research, particularly on the role of food in many non-Christian religious traditions, even though the question has not became the mainstream issue in the study of religion. Mm. And as another point, uh, myself, I wouldn't consider study of religion and food so much as a subfield, uh, but rather as a bridging and bonding within and between research fields. So one of the challenges of the research on food consumption is that it is spread over 
towards uh, multiple fields. But I think it's also a chance for research because food provides a tool for us to engage in ongoing uh, boundary work between different academic fields. And one of its benefits is that it can, uh, a study of food can make visible the relevance of uh, knowledge gained from studying religion also in other than religious studies fields. Uh, for example, me, myself, I'm a theologian and sociologist of religion, but I work a lot with people studying religion, culture, nutrition, sociology, social and public policy, for example. I've been learning from those approaches, but also I think I've been able to give some new perspective in those respective fields. So I see this topic as interdisciplinary rather than subdisciplinary venture. And for your PhD thesis, you studied food charity organizations in Finland. Could you say a few words about your findings and explain the ambivalence of the position of food recipients that you emphasized throughout your thesis? Yes, so uh, in my PhD research, I studied food charity at the interface between religious organizations and people seeking for material assistance. Uh, what I wanted to know first was how religion is manifest in food charity venues which are often run by religious organizations, and how the food aid recipients respond to the religious elements that they face in these venues. But second, I also analyzed the social position of the food aid recipients uh, uh, in the context of affluent consumer society. And what I found out was that the recipients of charitable food aid live in an ambivalent position where they are both excluded from and dependent on the prevailing practices of consumer culture. So in a system where the food aid relies on surplus food coming from the food markets, so it's that food that we, the more affluent consumers, choose not to eat. Uh, so in this kind of a situation, the food recipients are excluded from having consumer choice, but they are dependent on the wasteful food system, which is producing the preconditions of the aid that they receive. Uh, so in our society, food is simultaneously so cheap that it can be thrown away, but it's so expensive that some of us or many of us cannot afford it. So that's the paradox. And so food charity is a social practice that produces ambivalent social positions for its users, and religious organizations are actively involved in this work. So... What I think is super interesting is that religious organizations become actors not only in welfare provision, but also in the disposal end of the food system. And this is something that has been not studied in detail. And uh, now you're involved in a multi-year research on ethical eating and uh, food consumption in affluent societies such as Finland or Canada. And could you describe in its main goals of your new research uh, in a nutshell? Yes, so in a nutshell, uh, <laughs> the study starts from the fact that contemporary food system routinely produces more food than we are able to consume. Uh, while social stratification is probably nowhere more apparent than in food waste, what we eat and how we eat, yet still in many affluent societies, even the poorest consume too much natural resources. So in the midst of this kind of an ambiguity, uh, we are constantly invited to exhibit our identity, our values, and our personality through food choices. 
So my study explores the content and construction of ethical lives of ordinary people living in such context. I'm asking what people consider to be moderate with regards to food consumption and analyze how they construct these views. Uh, so I'm engaging in discussions of moderation, which is the a cardinal virtue of antiquity and uh, Christian theology, but I'm contextualizing it to this current uh, affluent society. This is a three-year project funded by Academy of Finland, and it's based on Tampere University. Uh, is it somehow connected to Canada or not? Mm, yes, so I'm... Uh, As a part of this research, I'm visiting here in the classics and religious studies, and I'm also uh, collecting uh, some of my data here in Canada. Yes. And so now we are going to talk about the data and your collection of it. Uh, as I know, you have shifted your focus in this current research from uh, religious groups to non so non-religious populations. Uh, what is the methodology of your research? Do you interview people? And if yes, uh, how do you choose whom to interview? Okay, thank you. Uh, this is interesting and very puzzling question. Uh, currently, I'm conducting uh, qualitative interviews to learn about people's practices, stories, opinions related to food and eating. Uh, previous studies on ethical food consumption primarily focus on those people who commit to certain ethical food uh, choices, to the, like buying organ organic or local food or so forth. Um, but less attention has been paid to ordinary people or quote-unquote non-ethical <laughs> consumers, as they are sometimes referred to in research. So there is need to study also people who do not necessarily or primarily base their food choices on particular ethical ideals. And what I try to do in this study is to include those nuns of ethical consumption in my research. So right now I'm gathering uh, interviews with people who live in one selected neighborhood here in Odawa. Uh, previous research has noted that place plays a role in maintaining an reproducing class stratified food practices. Yet, if we target on diverse neighborhoods, then we also get diverse voices. Uh, so I use this approach to target diverse voices and use of ordinary people. Uh, how do your respondents feel when you ask them about food consumption and more about food waste? Do you observe the feeling of guilt or shame? Yes, yeah, so already so far it has become apparent that Food is an emotionally charged topic. Uh, questions relating to food surplus and food waste evoke negative feelings. So people tend to feel bad about food waste in general and also about themselves having to waste food. And I think this is an important in affluent societies where the majority of food waste is actually produced on the household level. So it is us, the ordinary consumers, who produce most of food waste. Uh, and one of the reasons is simply that because we can afford to do so. And this causes negative emotional responses such as anxiety and guilt. And it's interesting to learn more about how people deal with these emotions, how we live about our lives with this kind of a continuous burden of guilt, okay? Uh, one another thing that I find interesting in is already that my respondents have noted that in contemporary world, food is very private and intimate issue. So as one of my interviews pointed out, food is like religion. 
you can cook for people, but you can't tell them what to, how to live. <laughs> so I think that is just fascinating approach to these questions. So people find it hard to address ethically dilemmatic questions without those in their communities, even though they would feel that it is important thing to tackle. Do you still uh, keep in mind and take in consideration the religious affiliation of your respondents? Or how do you choose, depending on their religious affiliation or not? Mm, I do not... Uh, uh, Like in advance, I do not uh, select any religious or non-religious people. By can we take that again? Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, so I do not select my interviewees based on their religious background, but I do ask their religious background uh, in the background questionnaire, so I get some information also about their religious affiliations or non. Uh, so when it comes to religion, I think. This study provides new knowledge of the practices and views of those people who do not necessarily or primarily identify as religious. And the, I think this study also gives insights into understanding whether and to what degree uh, food consumption is slipped as either religious or non-religious practice. Uh, so in other words, the study contributes to the research on lived religion and lived non-religion, which is a really topical question in sociology of religion right now. And unfortunately, we need to finish our conversation. Uh, to conclude, I want you to ask to give a few tips and suggestions to those researchers or students who are working on or willing to work uh, in the intersection of food and uh, religion or non-religion. Okay, I'm going to give one warning <laughs> and one suggestion. Uh, first, a warning. Uh, I do not think that we ought to state that food consumption equals religion. This is something that I want to stress out. Uh, so I don't think that food, uh, or, or food or eating constitutes some kind of a new religion. You know, it's simplifications to state that religion would reduce the food consumption or that food waste would uh, somehow reflect or symbolize religion. So instead, what I'm suggesting is just that Food consumption can serve as point of departure for research to understand the currents of religion. Okay, and as such, there are many interesting avenues to study. Uh, then, as a suggestion, uh, I would like to encourage, encourage us uh, to focus not only on individual people, but also on societal and discursive practices that revolve around food consumption. So, how do we, as societies, speak about food and treat our food? Uh, to what kind of kinds of institutions do contemporary practices and ethics of food consumption materialize? And how do these insights help us to understand religion and non-religion in today's world? Thank you very much for this interesting interview and I wish you all the best uh, uh, with your current research and with your further research, with your new ideas and uh, have a productive time. Canada. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent to hear that interview and excellent to hear such integration um, with our previous RSP podcast. So there was that one with uh, Michel Desjardins back in 2013 that was <laughs> that was sort of being explicitly built upon there in that part. It's like nice when your interviewee has also listened to your previous uh, output and is building on it as well. So right, it's yeah. very meta. Although there is a there's a slight twinge of regret that 
our early interviews are like scholarship has caught up and overtaken them now that there's going to come a point where uh, our early interviews are no longer the cutting edge, but they're kind of something that's been superseded. Yeah. Uh, well, but not in the case of Michel Desjardins, of no, course. Of he could course never not. be superseded. No, he couldn't, neither professionally nor personally. <laughs> we have tried. Um so um, just uh, on our usual sort of uh, announcement stuff, um, next week um, we've got uh, well, a sort of a, a first in many ways for the RSP. Uh, Ray Radford has been in this in this very room, actually. He's podcasted before. He, so you've heard his voice um, doing the introductions um, back in September, October. Um, but he's our social media editor, and he's been speaking with a couple of colleagues um about science fiction, video games, and religion, of course. <laughs> the religion and X market is alive and well. So that's an interview with um, Ben Banasic and Tara Smith. So we look very much forward to that. Thank you, Ray. Absolutely. Um, um, yeah. You, you've had a... There's been another issue of the... Um, rsp journal there has and um so it's just out online if you if your institution um subscribes it'll be a few weeks before the physical copies come in but uh this issue is themed around how religion is constructed in law and uh, i'm very proud of this issue um it includes articles by our good friends ethan quillen who's um, taken part in a number of our roundtables in the past on um, on atheism and religion constructed in the American court system, and also a paper by Suzanne Owen on the Pagan Federation's uh, charity applications, which of course in British law means legal recognition as a religion, um, as well as articles by Hugh McFaul. Hugh McFall and Jessica Giles, who are actually legal scholars writing about religion. So it's very interdisciplinary. And there's also an article there by Helga Arsheim, who is a colleague of Timu Taira, I believe, um, uh, writing about how international human rights law manages religion. Mm. So this is a, a really... I, I I think a very high level interdisciplinary discussion about issues of the construction of religion in law, and I hope um, I hope it gets a readership uh, yeah. because it deserves it. So that's implicit religion, and um, if your institution doesn't have access, remember that RSP subscribers can get a discount um, on on their subscription. Absolutely. So you access that through journals. Uh, Equinoxpub. Com. And. Um, Another announcement. Um, we're coming swiftly to to the end of the RSPs year, and we've still got another another month and a bit to go. But um, David and I have turned our attention to to the the makeup of the the team, and we will be posting uh, a sort of more formal call on the website very soon. But just uh, to let you know, sneak preview for the listeners. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be as ever. We're always looking for um, new interviewers to join the team. It would be good to get another couple. We had an, an excellent sort of slew of new interviewers last year. So if you think you could get behind the microphone, and also if you think you should be interviewed or know of anyone who should, could be interviewed, um, please feel free to get in touch. But more broadly, we'll, we'll have some openings um, in the team um, 
particularly thinking in terms of audio editing and um, maybe um, sort of financial wrangling um, we could do with, uh, you know, our, our resources are in, in rude health, but um, and thanks in no small part to all those Patreon subscribers, but um, we could do with someone trying to trying to boost our sponsorship and advertising income. Yeah, we're we're still hoping to be in a position to pay um, all of our editors a little something for what they do, um, but we just need a little bit more uh, advertising and things to get that. Um, yeah, so I mean, some if you're if you're interested in interviewing, great. We're going to take on a couple of interviewers, but I know some people are put off by the idea of interviewing they feel nervous about speaking publicly or they don't want to have to deal with the recording and so on in which case but if you want to contribute anyway i mean get in touch because we have as chris says as editorial positions um that don't require you to step in front of a microphone but are still hugely important to the rsp um you know as advertising we've mentioned but there's other things as well so do get in touch if you'd be interested give us an idea of the kind of thing you'd like to do and we'll put together a team for next year audio audio editing is is particularly important and i'll train you up if you'd be interested in that um we've we've gone on a little bit there so we might as well um just say yeah. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.